Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today I'm super excited to have the guest that we're gonna have on the show today. I mean, it's a, definitely the story, the real story or seeing the American dream exemplified uh, in a really, really good way. Uh, and definitely nothing has been given to him. I mean, the, his journey is remarkable. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Ilir Sela, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here, excited to chat. So born in the former Yugoslavia. So how was, how was being born there? Obviously, Albanian by, by background, but how was being born there in Yugoslavia? Yeah, it was, um, it, was, it was pretty awesome. I mean, I was born in a really small town, less than 10,000 people, um, Albanian by background. Um, and an interesting fact, I have a twin brother. So I would say, you know, our... our youngest childhood years were, you know, just fond memories of, um, you know, friends and family. But really, uh, my my dad was an entrepreneur. He was, uh, at the time, owned a tailor shop. Um, and I just remember, you know, always going there and asking him to, to buy us candy and, and things like that. But, um, you know, for the most part, it was, you know, a very small town um, type of upbringing until until I was ten years old, and that's when we moved to the U.S. So obviously, you land in Staten Island uh, at ten years old, as you were saying, and obviously a, a completely different world. So how was that that of an impact for you and the family? Oh my God, I remember that night uh, when we landed. It, it it felt like magic. Now imagine I'm coming from a really small town. There's no traffic lights where where I'm coming from. There's no, I don't, you know, we've got no idea what, why those would even be necessary. And remember, this is 1990 when I moved here. So not a lot of social media or, or ways to kind of see what New York is like um, ahead of time. And so we moved here. My uncle um, lived on Staten Island. And so we, we went and, um, you know, chose to live with him for the first few months when we, when we came to the U S but I remember landing and there were so many lights, you know, looking outside of the airplane window. Uh, it, it, it looked like a magical place. It looked like anything could be possible. Um, you know, coming in and, um, you know, that, that, 
that memory is etched in my, you know, within myself and, and I'll never forget it. And what, what would you say was the trigger? Why would, why would your, your parents say, okay, we're going to move the family now to, to New York? Oh, yeah. My, my family actually lived in New York in the 70s before I was born. Uh, they owned a small business pizzeria in Manhattan. And, and then they moved back um, a couple of years before we were born, my twin brother and I. So my older brother was actually born in, in Manhattan. Um, and I think they just kind of always back, went back and forth. Um, and then again, in 1990, uh, they chose to, to come back. I think mostly, to be honest, for the opportunity, to create opportunity for their kids, for us. So, so what would you say that you learned from the, I mean, the drive, I mean, the drive of your parents, no? I mean, having their own business, moving here, you know, to, to seek a better life. I mean, what have you learned from that, from that drive? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, look, I remember the first few months living in, 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 in the U S, uh, in order to make ends meet my, my dad had a full-time job, uh, working in Manhattan. So he would commute and then we converted one of our bedrooms into a shop. And so he would come home and then work again until two in the morning, um, on his own clients and finding ways to make sure that he can provide for us. And, and again, create opportunity. And that happened for the first, you know, I would say a handful of years. Um, and so I remember when I was 13 years old, uh, so this is three years in, I decided that, I, that it's really important that I start chipping in somehow. And so I went to the deli, which was in the corner of our block, and I begged the deli owner to allow me to work there, uh, you know, when I was, when I was out of school every afternoon. Um, and he was just like looking at me like I was crazy because, um, you know, 13 year old skinny kid, you know, too young to work obviously, but I kept going there every single day until he finally allowed me to, to do some work. And, um, at the time he paid me $2 per hour and, you know, I, I didn't want any days off. So I worked for, for seven days, um, four hours a day. And I was just helping and, and like he was mentoring me in, in some ways as well. Um, but I, you know, those were some of the things we had to do. And I would say for myself, just learning that, you know, nothing, nothing comes easy. It's, it's all about work and commitment and, um, you know, dedicating yourself to, to whatever you want to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so what got you into computer science? Um, I was, so my, I have an older brother um, and I remember my parents buying him a computer. Um, he was probably, you know, 18. Uh, he was 18 because he had just started college and we were 13, 14. And I just fell in love with just the technology. Uh, this is probably, you know, 1993, 1994. Um, and and the possibilities that it presented. And so immediately, you know, I started really, you know, tinkering with the, with the computer and like trying to figure out different things that it could do and it could accomplish. Um, and I would say, you know, ever since that moment, I think also my older brother would not, did not want us touching it. So, so right. it was partially like, you know, this special thing, um, and I would say 
from that moment on, I knew that, you know, my focus would be around technology and, and computer science. And you definitely did that. I mean, you went to university and, and, then, and then after that, you launched your own business. So how was that experience? Yeah. Um, so, so I was in school. Um, so I'm in college. And uh, this is early, um, really early 2000s. And there was this awesome emergence of broadband internet, network computing, wireless networks. You know, it was just a fascinating time in the world of IT. And not only myself, but a, a ton of my friends uh, who I went to school with, we were all doing computer repair and network support as a part-time you know, side gig uh, in order to, to make more money. And what I realized was over time that I didn't have all the answers. In fact, nobody did. So what, what we did was we created this email chain where any one of us can, can start asking questions, um, you know, when we came across a challenge that we couldn't solve. And, you know, something, you know, just, just kind of lit in my mind. And, and, and I thought to myself that, look, while we're all working independently, we would, we would probably be much stronger if we were a community, if we were, if we worked together in some way. And, there was a company in Canada called Nerds on Site, which I thought was amazing. Like it was genius as a brand because it really took this very specific field and it made it, you know, more mainstream and it made it more more welcoming. Especially if we had to go to people's homes and fix their computers and things like that, we wanted to make sure that we had a very welcoming brand. So. So I launched NerdForce in 2003, and the idea was that we would create the most, you know, valuable computer technology team and make that available to small businesses and home offices who could not afford a full-time employee to figure those things out. And initially, it was myself and a handful of friends. Uh, and within two years, we actually had over 30 technicians across the entire New York tri-state area. Uh, in fact, the New York Daily News ran a special um, you know, uh, issue, I think it was on a Sunday in 2005, 2006, to highlight breakout companies post 9-11 New York City um, that were really carving out a, and blazing a trail, um, you know, in New York. So they they chose NerdForce as one of those companies, and uh, and so our brand awareness just really s continued to accelerate. And nice. you know that was that was sort of the beginning of of that business. So then, obviously, this business, you know, it's experiencing growth. I mean, you your first business, so pretty remarkable the the experience. So so why did you decide? To, um, to get the business acquired? Yeah, so we got really lucky because a few years in, Best Buy launched uh, a, a team, a product called Geek Squad, if you've ever heard of that. Um, yeah. And so Geek Squad was part of Best Buy. Everyone wanted to, to get into that business. It was a really cool offering. And because that was not a franchise model, 
no one was really able to, 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 to adopt that brand. So we started getting a lot of calls from people all over the country who wanted to participate in the Nerdforce business. And so I franchised the business model uh, and we scaled it to 124 locations nationwide. Uh, and these were all franchisees, independently owned and operated. Um, and in 2008, a public company uh, that provided managed solutions to enterprise companies wanted to get into the small business space. And they viewed Nerdforce as a vehicle to sell their products and solutions like data backup and data recovery and help desk, but sell their solutions to the small business segment. And they approached me with, uh, at the time, an offer that I felt was really compelling, but it was also compelling for me because I felt that they would give us an opportunity to really accelerate our success and scale. And that was another very fortunate moment. Luck has, <laughs> luck has been on my side in a lot of cases um, because I signed the deal and we closed it in June of 2008. And then, as you, as you know, by October, November of 2008, the financial and economic world globally changed uh, and really impacted the business in a negative way. Um, so that was, uh, that was sort of the conclusion of the Nerdforce journey uh, for me. Talking about timing. Talking about timing earlier. So, so I guess uh, here your full cycle uh, with the first experience so what would you say that, that this full cycle experience taught you? You know, if you had to, you know, really uh, synthesize this in like three big takeaways that you knew you would implement for your next business, what would you say those three big takeaways were? Um, I would say the first one by far was the idea that communities, even within business, this idea that working for yourself, not by yourself, is really, really powerful. Because once we, once we adopted that mentality is when we all became much better and, and really strong uh, individually. So just the notion of teams and communities and like-minded entrepreneurs working together is a really powerful phenomenon, which I think we've brought to the pizza industry with Slice incredibly well, and we can talk about that. Um, I would say number two, just grit. Um, I'll give you an example. When I when I decided to, it was time to franchise our business model. I went and spoke with an attorney, who can help with that process, and they quoted me two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. I didn't have that money, or at least I didn't have two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to invest. So, you know, instead of using that as a reason to not franchise our business, I literally locked myself in our office for probably four or five days in a row. And I figured out how to franchise my own business. So I figured out how to trademark our brand and logo, how to create at the time, it was called the Uniform Franchise Offering Circular, which is a massive document. I wrote it all myself and I had someone review it, someone in the, in the franchise industry. And it, it, you know, it worked it. That's, that's how I franchised our model. Um, and I would say it's that level of grit and 
you know, failure is not an option type of approach was validated for me um, through some of those efforts. I would say the third one, as you said, you know, a few seconds ago, timing is everything. So, (laughs) you know, sometimes it's not, it's not the effort. It's not the idea. It's time. And some ideas are too early. Some are, some ideas are too late, Uh, but timing is everything. Yeah. So, so basically here, so 18 months after the transaction has closed, you go at it again and you started with a company called mypizza.com, which rebranded into the slice that we know today. So tell us how this idea came, you know, in front of you and, and how you went about it, you know, to bring it to life. Of course. Um, so, so knowing and understanding the franchise world incredibly well, because as a franchise business, we operated for about three years. Um, you know, along the way, because we were in technology, a lot of my family members that own small business pizzerias wanted help with websites, with their online presence. I started hearing a lot about online ordering. Papa John's, Domino's, these big brands were really investing heavily uh, in, in those platforms. And, and then the emergence of the iPhone in 2008 um, just really opened up a ton of new possibilities and opportunities. And I was, I was kind of taken back by the, the consistency in the asks from my family members around their needs. And something clicked in my mind, which was that while franchise models provide this level of consistency um, across their, their franchisee base, small businesses, especially within um, the same vertical, within the same industry, are actually operating in a very similar way. They just don't know it. And there's there's no one that's connecting them. There's no one that's uniting them. And so I spent a few months really studying the pizza industry as a whole. Um, You know, I know and understand the individual unit, the unit uh, economics end to end, but I didn't really have an appreciation for what the pizza industry meant in America and really how it was broken down. And what I learned and that at the time it was a $35 billion industry. Today it's $47 billion in the US. Um, and what I learned is that the overwhelming majority of that industry is actually small businesses. So about 75% of all locations in the US are small business pizzerias, 25% are these big chains combined Domino's, Pizza Hut, Papa John's, Little Caesars. And so knowing and understanding the value of community and working together and investing in technology from my nerd force experience, I realized that we can create a challenger brand and platform to unite local pizza and win, win the industry uh, collectively. And I came up with the name mypizza.com because that was the domain name that I was able I was able to secure at the time. Uh, it was for for sale for um, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and we somehow going back and forth with the owner at the time, 
ended up negotiating the name down to $15,000. And by the way, the person who I bought it from, I'm still friends with now on Facebook. And every year he sends me congratulatory uh, notes, which is, which is pretty awesome. So very nice. So that was the, the beginning of mypizza.com. Um, I literally wrote my own press release. It, it actually still exists on the internet. Um, if you search my pizza PR web, it, it'll be there. You can read it. But um, yeah, that was, that was, you know, the beginning of the beginning of my pizza and the first 30, 35 partners are pizzeria partners or family and friends that own, that own these businesses. So then why did you decide that uh, it was time to rebrand? Because rebrands are a beast. They're not easy. Yeah. So we rebranded um, in 2016. So six years later. Uh, and up until that point, we were still very much focused on the business side. So we were very B2B focused. We had partnered by then with about 3,000 locations nationwide. And we were powering their websites and online ordering. But the consumer side of the ecosystem still didn't really know what mypizza.com was. Um, because the websites that, that they were visiting were, you know, Joe's Pizzeria, Billy's Pizzeria, etc. In 2016, we chose to enter the direct-to-consumer space with the launch of our mobile apps on iOS and Android. Which is kind of wild because up until that point, I mean, in 2015, we processed over 40 million in sales and we didn't even have an app. We didn't have an iOS app. We didn't have an Android app. And so as we looked at the consumer side uh, and I hired a chief marketing officer, we felt that it was the right time to really take a closer look at our branding strategy because the risk was very low for us um, because the brand awareness was still very low. And we took a very, you know, first principle type of approach. Um, you know, someone recommended Slice as a brand and a million people told me, no, you can't, can't call it Slice because it's a, it's a very common term. There's a lot of other companies who own the name Slice for other reasons, like the, you know, the drink, the soda Slice so on and so forth. And what they told me is that it's not ownable. And for me, that for whatever reason, the way my brain is wired is that's all I wanted. That's all I needed to hear. Um, and I, I felt like it was the best name for that represents our business. Uh, it's simple. It's one syllable. Um, so we, we went for it. And fast forward to today, Slice is synonymous with our business. Very cool. So for the people that are listening, what ended up being the business model of Slice? So our business model is now an end-to-end -end platform for small business pizza restaurants to be in business for themselves, not by themselves. Slice, in essence, is an extension of these businesses where we manage their entire digital presence. We power their website. We power the presence of their website and brand across all of the internet, including Google, Facebook, Instagram, TripAdvisor. Um, and then we've got, obviously, all of that is enabled with e-commerce, uh, online ordering. And then we've got uh, the Slice app, which is uh, a branded app for Slice, where consumers can go and order from their favorite local pizzerias. 
And then we handled all of the marketing, all of the CRM. We're now getting into supplies. So we're lowering the cost of supplies by bringing that buying power that we have on a national level and making it available to one individual small business. So in essence, we're creating the world's largest pizza chain uh, and really empowering small business owners to be more successful without having to sacrifice their creative freedom, without having to sacrifice their own personal brand. Because how big of a market is the pizzeria and pizza market? I mean, what what kind of, you know, numbers are we talking about here? Yeah, so today in the U- in the United States, the pizza industry is 47 billion dollars and that is revenue that passes across 77,000 locations. And again, 25,000 of those locations are sorry, 25% of those locations are these big chains and everyone else is a small business local shop. So our focus is on the local segment and we don't we do not work with Domino's Pizza Hut, Papa John's, or Little Caesars. And and obviously during the first years of Slice, I mean, you really followed the typical uh, advice from you know places like Y Combinator, like Paul Graham, that says that at the beginning you got to go with with unscalable stuff to really understand the business inside and out, and then you can go into automating. But in this case, you took that to heart. I mean, you were really doing unscalable stuff on your own cell phone. So tell us about that. Absolutely, and. Uh, you know, in hindsight, reading a lot about other entrepreneur stories and the white white combinator um, companies, I mean, it's it's inspiring. But at the time, I had no idea what any of that was. I didn't I didn't even know what a venture capitalist was. Um, and for me, I think the approach that I took, which is you know, do things that don't scale, was out of necessity and you know, having a mentality that failure is not an option. Um, so for the first a couple of years of our business, I'll give you the example. Consumers visit these websites for the pizzerias that we power and they place an order. And when they place an order, they're placing that order online. Well, for the first two years, those orders would come to my cell phone. And then I would personally call the pizza shop to give them the order by phone because the pizzeria owner refused to have any technology in their store. It was too, too intimidating. Um, and so I did that, I would say, you know, again, for the first couple of years to the point where I no longer had a life and my entire day was me calling pizzerias and giving them, you know, their orders while in the evenings I was trying to figure out how to get more sales and, and things like that. So. You know, it was it was it was an interesting first couple of years, but um, finally, you know, the moment came for us to start hiring some help, and we could afford to do that. Um, you know, and that's when we we scaled, and I scaled from, you know, being just individually run to to surrounding myself with a team, and also surrounding yourself with your family and people back in your hometown. So what happened there? Yeah, so um, you know. Uh, and I'll tell you a story about sort of our unit economics and 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 just you know how much scale you actually need to to be able to afford anything. And again, naively, I didn't know what a venture capitalist was. I'm bootstrapping the company because I was 
you know, raised in a way that um, I thought business was figure out how to build something for a dollar, sell it for two, and do that as many times as possible. And like with scale, you can afford more help. So that was that was the approach I took. Um, and once we started getting a, a lot of orders and a lot of menus that we had to publish on our websites, um, you know, it was very difficult to keep up, but I also couldn't afford full-time help in New York. It's a very expensive market. And I have family still in, uh, in the former Yugoslavia. Now it's Macedonia. So I hired a handful of family members to help me do data entry uh, super early on. Um, and I would pay them, you know, a, a small, small amount for every menu that they published. But for the market there, it was a really big sum. I mean, making $10 a day, for example, was a huge deal. Uh, you're you're looking at an average average person at at that time in Macedonia probably made fifty dollars a month. So um, so it was it was a, an amazing win win. It allowed me to offload some of my work to my family members in Macedonia, and it gave them opportunity to make uh, to make some money. And Very they've nice. done such an amazing job that if you fast forward to today. We are one of the largest employers in Macedonia. Uh, we have over 500 team members, uh, you know, in this small country that every time I bring up, you know, most people are like, where, where, where is Macedonia? So it's been, <laughs> it's been a journey. And it, I, I will say I would not be here and our company would not be as successful without the help and the sacrifice of of all the team members in Macedonia. Because now how many employees do you have? We're now over 700 people. Uh, so we have a presence. Our headquarters are in New York. Uh, we have a team in Belfast, Northern Ireland. And we now have three different offices in Macedonia. Very nice. Uh, and obviously, you know, it sounds like uh, there's a lot of payroll there and a lot of cost, you know, especially if you're thinking about growing this and growing it fast. So how much capital have you guys raised today? Yeah, in, in order to, to fuel growth, um, we raised our first round of funding in 20, late 2015, um, and it was led really by the founding team of Seamless Web, which now is known as Grubhub. Fast forward to today, we've raised $82 million, and our most recent round of funding was led by KKR Growth, and that was about um, four months ago, five months ago, and that was a $43 million round. And why was it harder to raise the first round versus the second round? Um, the first, I'll be honest, oh, sure, the other way around. Pretty, pretty simple. Uh, we had a lot of traction. Our, our numbers looked great. We were profitable. We were growing quickly. And then, you know, when you get an influx of capital, I think, you know, in hindsight, we kind of got away from what made us special, what made us great. We started getting a little bit, we lacked some discipline and we started spending money in ways that, you know, prior to that, I would have, I would have never imagined spending money that way. Um, and the reality is that when investors commit capital and trust in a founder and entrepreneur, the goal is to turn that capital, capital into, into value. And we didn't do that very well 
in the first uh, couple of years. And so the second round and the third round were a little bit more challenging. Um, but, you know, everything for me is a lesson. Um, and in some cases, you know, I took lower valuations to partner with the right investors and they have stood by me and stood by the business during some of those challenging times. Um, and, and then fast forward to today when everything clicks and, and we're now back, you know, in really hyper growth mode, it was, it was a really, uh, great experience raising our last round. So what, just to uh, highlight, you know, you said the right investor, what does the right investor look like? Yeah. Um, I'm so fortunate to have some of these great investors in it. And I got, I received some really good feedback from a couple of friends that were founders of other companies and obviously our original investors. And the feedback was that don't ever just simply optimize for valuation for price because this is a long journey. It's a marathon. And what's really important is to have a relationship with a with an investor where their terms are very clean. The term sheet is super you know, company friendly. And then the, the, the partner has a long-term view and appreciation for the business. So for me, it was, do they believe and share in my vision for where we're headed? Or are they asking me to make changes? And am I, you know, kind of turning a blind eye to that simply because I know that I need capital. And I think a lot of people make that sacrifice because they need the capital. They partner with, with an investor who doesn't actually share the vision. They, they actually want some changes. And I, and I think that's, you know, challenging, presents a lot of challenges down the, down the road. So do they share your vision? Um, are they somebody that you would hire and vice versa? Um, and, you know, will they be there during the difficult times? And so part of my diligence work during that, um, original round of funding, you know, most investors will give you the highlights. So they'll connect you with all these founders that they backed. And those companies are now breakouts, whether it's Airbnb or Uber or, you know, you name it. But for me, like that was not as important. I wanted to talk to the founders that uh, whose business failed, and that's okay. Fail, you know, failures are awesome because they're lessons. But I wanted to know and hear from those founders, and I wanted to understand how did these partners, how did these investors behave, or you know, supported or or not supported. Uh, these teams and these companies during the most challenging times. And I found those calls to be by far the most valuable. Wow. I mean, what, what, I mean, it's amazing that you're sharing this because this is what I always tell entrepreneurs. So I'm right there with you. I mean, during those calls, what did you find out? Yeah. Um, you know, you, you hear a lot of stories. Um, it's, it's pretty interesting because, um, you know, you're talking to founders who, had recently been through very difficult and, and tough times. And you find out that some, some investors 
you know, I'm not here to name names, but some investors, you know, love really favoring and, and being there for the winners. But the reality is the winners don't really need them as much. And so I learned that there are great investors who double down on their time when companies go through challenging times. And I also learned about investors who support founder decisions. You know, some founders wanted to sell their company. You know, did the investor block that or did they support it? You know, so it's a lot of battle stories like that um, that, you know, came up. And it was really a, a wide variety of, of challenges and behaviors and, and things like that. And we had a number of term sheets. And so by the time we made our decision, I was really confident that, you know, we had the right partner. That's really cool. So, so tell us now about Slice. I Slice Accelerate, the new initiative. We are very excited about Slice Accelerate. So before I go into the details of what it is, the beauty of what Slice Accelerate presents today is that it's a combination of efforts and solutions and products that we have tested and proven successful independently over the last handful of years. And with Slice Accelerate, we're taking all of these solutions and services and bundling them into you know, one, one theme, one product, and applying it in full to, to one location at a time. So for Slice Accelerate, we're investing $15,000 in products, services, technology, hardware, in order to completely digitize and accelerate the, the success of, of independent pizzeria locations. In our first cohort, we're gonna welcome 100 locations. And so I'll walk you through what that means. We partnered with Pizza Mia, which is on Staten Island here in my local market. We chose that location on purpose because it's in my market and I can I can really, you know, be close to to their to their uh, performance and the owner and really learn and listen and have those conversations. But with Pizza Mia, we took what you would see as a traditional, you know, everyday corner store with a very dated look with an awning that's missing three letters, um, you know, your typical small business storefront. And we refreshed the brand to the point where you cannot even recognize what was there prior. It's still the Pizza Mia name. It's still the same owner, but it's the owner's vision that's now come to life in terms of their brand. It's how the owner imagined their brand when they decided that they wanted to go into business. And what that's done is created so much consumer confidence in that neighborhood that just through that branding refresh alone, business went up. But that's just one, one part. We then go in and we plug in an operating system, a technology point of sale solution to cre create a lot of efficiency and alleviate a lot of the workflow that pizzerias have to go through as they serve customers. And then we come in with our, our world-class you know, websites and e-commerce solution with the Slice app. We showcase these locations on the app. And ultimately, if I were to summarize it, 
we're bringing a very Domino's-like platform, including the brand, to independent locations in order to make sure that they become more successful. And the way to do that is to transform these locations from offline businesses where most of their uh, consumers are ordering by phone and convert them into digital businesses where they're ordering through mobile apps and online ordering on their website. Very nice. Very nice, Ilir. So, so obviously there is one question here that I like to ask you that I typically ask the guests that come on the show, and that is, if you had the opportunity to go back in time and, and have a chat with your younger self, with that younger Ilir that is thinking about maybe launching a business, knowing what you know now, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self and why before launching a business? Um, yeah, that's <laughs> what a great question. Um, can I, can I give you two answers? Go for it. Um, the one that's a no brainer for me is surround yourself with people who are smarter than you align on your, with your vision and do that as early as possible, because the earlier that you can do that, the more likely it is that that you will succeed as a business owner, as a founder. And so I wish I knew that sooner. I would say that the one that really is, is a much bigger opportunity in hindsight is to think incredibly big and relative to those big dreams, become a great storyteller. Have the ability to really inspire people with your dreams and tell your story and tell people why. Because through that, um, through that storytelling, through those words and emotions and, and dreams, then people can follow you. And when people follow you, you can recruit great talent. You can sell to the, to the really stubborn small businesses. Um, really anything is possible. And I believe storytelling is the only superpower that people have. Um, and so I wish I worked on that craft earlier. Um, but again, in hindsight, I would tell anyone who's either in school, I would tell my daughter to be a great storyteller. That's amazing. So, uh, Ilir, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Um, anyone can say hi. I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Ilir Sela, I-L-I-R-S-E-L-A. Um, and I've got the same handle on Instagram and LinkedIn. So definitely say hello. Amazing. Well, Ilir, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you so much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.